zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Hand, released April 24th, 1981. It was written and directed by Oliver Stone, based on the novel The Lizard's Tale by Mark Brandel, or Brandel, and released by Orion Pictures. The role of Jonathan was turned down first by John Voight and later Christopher Walken, James Brolin, and Dustin Hoffman. Why even take this to Dustin Hoffman? Yeah, it doesn't seem like his kind of movie. No. But honestly, I think they ended up with the best option out of all of them. Yeah, I think so too because I think Michael Caine's the only one that would go into that 110%. And I find him the, the, the kind of creepiest of all of them. I mean, Christopher Walken can obviously be creepy, but he's yeah. he's more weird creepy than like yeah. off-putting creepy. Yeah. I, I I would I would find it less believable for Christopher Walken to be in this relationship. Right. Yeah. Uh, also less likely for some reason less likely to believe him as an asshole husband. <laughs> uh maybe just cuz I think Michael Caine seems like a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably just because he plays jerks all the time. Well, but... those people are usually the nicest, though, right? Right. But in movies, they're very convincing jerks. Brolin regretted turning down an opportunity to work with Stone, and his son would later play the lead of one of Stone's presidential biopics, W. Apparently, Eddie Deason was especially interested in taking on the role and auditioned, but Stone didn't like the way he walked. Isn't he kind of young for the role? Mm, not know. in the 80s. I mean, he could have had a kid by then. Uh... Well, no, I guess he would have been kind of. I'm thinking. I'm he thinking, is young to have a small child. Yeah, because I was thinking about him in 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 1941. Yeah, this is this is an IMDb trivia bit, so that's entirely possible. That's made up. It does seem like he's too young to have what a seven or eight year old daughter. Yeah. And 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 that voice that he does is is that just an act or is that his actual? No, voice? that's his voice. Is that his real yeah, voice? Okay, yeah. sorry, Eddie, Eddie Deason. If it, I, I wasn't. No, we wasn't, love your voice. It wasn't yeah, critical. Yeah. He was like, just curious I, if that's how you talk all the time. Yeah, I know you listen, Eddie. The film shut down briefly for the SAG strike in July of 1980, but resumed afterward to get all of Kane's close-ups in October. VFX wizard Carlo Rambaldi worked with Stan Winston designing 30 different mechanical hands for the film that crawled, walked, and strangled people. That seems slightly unnecessary. That's how many they designed. I don't think they were all constructed. Okay, I was going to say. I think there were at least three constructed. Like... For a vast majority of the shot, the way the hands are framed, it probably could have just been somebody's hand coming yeah. in frame. Like I was kind of confused the why they bothered. Have come off and like yeah. have a black glove covering the actual part of the hand and just have it at an angle. So yeah. like it really like didn't one of need... those Halloween gloves. Yeah, it didn't mm-hmm. need to be mechanical. And yeah. most of those shots, it probably would have looked better. The film was mentioned in an end of 1981 Rolling Stone article called "Big Bucks, Big Losers," discussing the top 24 bombs of the year. On a $5.5 million budget, it made one back. One dollar. No, one million dollars. The film has been incorrectly described by some as a remake of similar films, The Hands of Orlock or The Beast with Five Fingers. But it is its own original story. Not Manos, The Hands of Fate? No. No, that's totally different. 
We start with a black screen, and Richard, maybe you can confirm for me, is this a blaster beam we're hearing? Oh, uh, you know, honestly, I, I wasn't paying attention enough. I didn't look for your your friend, now. the composer who invented the quote-unquote instrument. Yeah, yeah. Over black, we see the opening credits handwritten in white. These titles, by the way, were designed by Dan Perry, the mastermind behind the opening titles for Star Wars, Taxi Driver, The Exorcist, and everything else great that came out of the 70s and 80s. We get aerial photography of a lakeside community with docks on the water, and we settle on a big house on the hill. A child with a stick runs through the front yard past a walled-in gazebo. Inside, we see the girl's father putting the finishing touches on a comic strip called Mandro, which appears to be a sort of He-Man, Conan-type hero. And the panels we see, Mandro's queen Lyra is being abducted by demons. The Mandro comics seen in the film are actually the work of Marvel artist Barry Windsor Smith, who illustrated the Conan comics in the early 70s. Stone would go on to write the script for John Milius's celebrated Conan the Barbarian film. We crossfade to the hand of the artist, Jonathan Lansdale, who wears a signet ring bearing his initials, though it's hard not to see someone illustrating a comic book and not instantly be reminded of the Justice League when you see JL on a ring. Yeah. Oh, I wasn't. It's hard for us. You know what I mean? No. People who have a hard time doing that. Okay. So by definition, I'm right. He starts to ink the panels and signs his work before stepping out of the gazebo. His daughter Lizzie sees him carrying papers to the house and guesses correctly that this is the latest issue of Mandro. She asks if he's rescued the princess yet, and Jonathan tells her that'll happen next week. This is a daily comic strip. It does four panels a day, and it comes out every day of the week. Wow, it's like a tantric comic. (laughs) Yeah. It's like Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. (laughs) We're gonna fight. I'm swinging my fist next episode. Like, even on the weekends? It's yeah. Not just a... No, I think it's weekdays, probably. I don't know. It's like, you got to have some time to catch up. Throw some reruns in there. That's <laughs> not how comics work, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Inside the house, Jonathan finds his wife Anne doing yoga, or her best impression of yoga. <laughs> he reminds her that they're having drinks with friends later, and she doesn't sound super excited about it. She tells him about a new apartment that just became available in the city for $350 a month. Jonathan assumes there's something wrong with the place at that price. A package in the mail catches his eye. The return address says the Origin Institute, Courses in Creative Living, and it's addressed to Anne. I googled it. Doesn't seem to be an actual thing. Ah. In case you were wondering. You missed out on Catalani being a real person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, thank, thank you. <laughs> I wanted to sign up for classes there, damn it creative living yeah you've been doing boring living yeah well what i thought it was at first was some kind of uh divorce papers or like oh, yeah, legal yeah. notice but then i was like the origin institute oh, no creative sounds... living away from your husband <laughs> yeah <laughs> well but you know it could be like discreet packaging if you're like yeah in a in a marriage that you're worried like, about your we husband. don't want him to know that it's divorce paperwork and it's like it just says like anal sex toy <laughs> <laughs> it's like there you won't open that Anne gets more forceful and tells Jonathan that if they want the apartment, they'll have to put in a deposit by this weekend, sight unseen. Without even seeing it? Tamara Willard saw it, and she says that it's a steal. It's not going to be there Monday. He mocks her desire to move to the city and take frivolous classes like creative living at expensive universities. We cut to Jonathan chopping a log in half. In any other movie like this where you know someone's going to lose a limb (laughs) in an accident, there's always a few scenes before it happens where you can just see this hand coming off. This is like the Crispin Glover and Hot Tub Time Machine. (laughs) Right. Everyone just keeps waiting for it to happen. He seems to have an awful lot of money for someone who just does a comic. I mean, 
It's an it, extremely popular comic. Yeah, it, it must be. It's a nationwide I mean, comic, they say at least, because it's getting syndicated. But he's a fine lumberjack. He doesn't chop his hand off here. We notice Lizzie poking something with a stick. He walks up to see that she's found a lizard tail in the pine needles on the ground, and it wiggles when she pokes it. How does a lizard know I'm doing that when there's no head? A few feet away, we see a cat eating presumably the rest of the lizard. Jonathan assures her that it's just a reflex, but she shows him that the tail stops moving until she gets close to it with a stick, and it wiggles again. Is that how that works? I've never poked a lizard tail with uh, a stick. Then you I, haven't lived. Yeah, I think they just keep flopping around. Yeah. But like, is it in a reaction to stimuli? No. I, th- I think you just, need a brain it, for that. Yeah, I think it just it just r- is just flopping. So they are implying that there may be something going on here that supernatural. Yeah. That that because you're applying stimulus and it's reacting. Maybe or maybe it's just a coincidence that she happens to put the stick next to it when it was about to move already. Okay. They leave it open to interpretation. There's a lot of that. Yeah. But I find a lot of lizard tails in my yard because of magpie. Oh. Yeah. That's a cat, by the way, not a bird. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, it, well, actually, it is a bird. But well, yes, no, <laughs> the I, magpie I know that. <laughs> actually, it started as a pie. <laughs> if we want to be technical, just pie made of magazines. I don't know what a magpie just, is. I, <laughs> Somebody is now going to think that you have a pet bird, a cat, and a pie at your house. Yeah. And a lot of dead lizards. No, actually, because they regrow the tails. So you yes. can find a lot of tails and only have one lizard. It's just fast enough to get away. That's why they shed the tail. Yeah. Is to escape. Smoke bomb. <laughs> tail bomb. <laughs> Suddenly, the cat shrieks in and steals the tail from in front of them, and we get our first jump scare. Amanda! We cut to the next day, and the camera cranes down from branches of a tree to follow a car driving through the country. Jonathan is asking what her friend Tamara thought about the apartment, and Anne admits that Tamara said it's a bit small. When Jonathan asks where in this small apartment he's supposed to do his work, Anne admits that her plan was for him to not come with them and that he could work out of the house by the lake. Jonathan is upset to learn that his wife intended to leave him alone at the house five days a week and even claims it was his idea because he said he didn't want to go to New York. (laughs) It's like, this was your idea. (laughs) You said you didn't want to go there. So I thought you'd get me an apartment there for me and your daughter alone. But it's quite a leap to assume that that means I want everyone else to spend winters in New York without me. Anne is trapped behind a flatbed truck and a woman comes up on their rear fast and honks at them. She tries to swerve around them, but Jonathan shouts her back because it's a blind curve ahead. As their conversation continues, it gets tenser, and it's clear that Anne is talking about a path to divorce. Nothing she says here makes a lot of sense, though. She tells him that what she's talking about isn't a separation or anything, and that she says it would be better for them to live in different houses for the entire season. That's <laughs> it's exactly like, what a separation that's, is. That's a separation. <laughs> I thought you understood that. I thought that was why you said well, that I could... Well, we obviously do not understand each other. There is no way I'm going to let you traipse off to New York with Lizzie, leaving me here alone to pay the bills. A darkness takes over Anne's demeanor, and she announces that she'll go with or without his permission. Then I'll go anyway. You what? And signals left and steps on the gas to get around the flatbed truck. Jonathan points to a car coming the opposite direction and tells her to look out, but she keeps driving forward and honking her horn like it's the oncoming traffic's fault. And and then the car that was behind them... Pulls in to fill the space. Yeah. But still, you she, step on your brakes, right. come you to a complete stop, the car and that, then yeah. switch to the right. But she keeps driving forward alongside right. these cars. Right. 
Jonathan still has his arm outside the window when they collide with the flatbed truck, and the end of the truck pinches Jonathan's wrist against the window frame of his door and chops his hand clean off. All the cars come to a stop, pulling to the side of the road, and they're all drenched in blood, which is just rocketing from the stump. Yeah. And, and there's no music. Right. Which it, which added to like to the tension of the scene. Like uh, I was just like, oh, God, it's just silent in his screaming. Yeah, and he's screaming, and then when she's realizing what's happening, she's staying on the side of the road, and his blood is just rocketing into her face. Yeah. And she's pulling off Everywhere. her sash to make like a tourniquet for him. There's a line of blood down the truck. We flash forward a few hours, and Jonathan is being loaded into an ambulance. While the ambulance pulls away, the police, the driver of the flatbed, and Anne all search a nearby field for the missing appendage. We flash forward what looks like months, and the stump is completely healed over. A doctor is testing it for sensitivity. He talks Jonathan through an exercise for his wrist. Jonathan tells him that he can still feel his fingers, even though there's nothing there. And the doctor says that those phantom feelings will last years and might never go away. He offers to put Jonathan in touch with a good prosthetic man. He's not a real man. (laughs) At home that night, Jonathan talks his daughter Lizzie through what happened. Lizzie asks why they couldn't reattach it because she heard a story about a little boy whose hand was reattached. Ah, but you have to find the hand right away to do that. What happened to the hand? Mommy went to look for it. And it ran away. I was a little confused about the timeline here because the stump is totally healed over. So I thought it was later, but then I'm like, is it only months later that she's starting to ask about it? So then I thought it was immediately after, and that was just weird. Yeah, you would think that the here. daughter would have visited him in the hospital, or, yeah, or that they like would have discussed it at home if he hasn't been in the hospital. Start asking about this before now. Yeah. Right away, though, I assumed that when we saw her eyes shut down and she was like, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want, that she chopped his hand off on purpose, even though that would be impossible to coordinate. Clearly, the accident was not like was not something that she was trying to get into but i still thought at this point that probably what happened is she found the hand when she went to look for it and oh. threw it out into the field because she didn't want him to be an artist anymore mm. i mean the way that they shoot it it does almost feel like there is something coming over her yeah that is influencing her in this decision and when she says like well i'm gonna do it anyway and he's like what like he seems scared of her in yeah. that moment after Lucy goes to bed, it sounds from his conversation with Anne that Jonathan has agreed to move to New York with them. Anne moves to touch his arm, and he pulls it away. She jumps on this opportunity to push him away further and continues grabbing at the stump against his will. She tells him that it's all right, but he breaks down and tells her, <laughs> It's so ugly. This is another reason that I feel like the timeline was weird with the healed stump, and now it's just like, you were going to move to New York immediately. You just right. had an apartment. Mm. Yeah. So is it, is is it, it still, still winter? Yeah, I don't know. In the middle of the night, Jonathan heads out to the gazebo and tries to continue his life's work left-handed, but it doesn't look so great. He inspects the work with a magnifying glass when suddenly the cat growls from the corner of the gazebo, if a gazebo legally has corners, I don't know. And Jonathan returns to his work when the cat drops out of nowhere onto his drawing board and then hisses in his face before turning to jump straight through a plate glass window. (laughs) Well, I have a sort of explanation for this. Okay. Um, But it gets into spoilers. Okay. So I don't don't know if we want to wait. Either way, I love that this cat jumped and went right through a window pan. I think it's kind of funny that he kind of just looks 
out the window? Like, is there a lacerated cat just bleeding out on my lawn? I would assume that there was, <laughs> the way it jumped through that window. Now alone, he is suddenly distracted by a log falling off a woodpile in the corner, and he throws a table across the room to stand up and look out the window. We see him the next day, on the fateful turn in the road where he lost his hand, he sees skid marks and bloodstains in the road, and we get a flashback to the scene where his arm is pinched off at the wrist and shoots like a rocket propelled yeah. by a jet of blood. <laughs> I feel like you could probably bring dogs in to have found this. I would think mm-hmm. so, yeah. Jonathan tries to concentrate, and we get an insert of the decomposing hand in the tall grass covered in beetles. He walks back and forth through the grass for a while, eventually finding the signet ring, but no hand. On my first pass, I thought the implication was that the hand is way too far away from the road and someone must have thrown it out here. Jonathan gets down on his hand and knees to look for his right-hand man. And we see the POV of something crawling along beside him in the grass. (laughs) Eventually, it backs away from him and retreats into the field. We see Jonathan at a fancy dinner with his agent, Karen. He's telling her that he found his signet ring, and she accuses him of never liking that ring because Anne gave it to him. He asks her not to speak ill of Anne while they eat, and she leans over to cut his food for him. He looks around the restaurant for a moment, embarrassed that he needs this help, but nobody's looking, so it's okay. I feel like you wouldn't have ordered steak or something. You're just like, I'm going to go with the soup if I can't. Just eat <laughs> salad just, for the rest of my life because no, I don't have another I hand. Just, when you go out and about, you don't want, like, if, if you're embarrassed by that, But then you have to cook every eat. steak you eat for the rest of your life. Yeah. No, thank you. He's rich. Well, I would say at this point he would have a prosthetic well, he doesn't have the prosthetic yet, Right, he's but about the, to get it. But yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, why not? Why has he not gotten it yet? Well, he's about to. Give him some time, buddy. He just got put in touch with a prosthetic man. It takes. Those are custom made because every stump is different. Mm. They're like snowflakes. <laughs> <laughs> flesh flakes. <laughs> They're like flesh flakes. <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> They're not made of snow. That's true. He informs her that he received an invitation while in hospital from a professor at a Northern California college to teach a class on comics. Karen tells him that they'd like to continue the strip even without his illustrations and they already have a replacement artist in mind, David Maddow. She thinks that maybe Jonathan could continue writing and blocking things and David would just illustrate. We cut back to the field at night and we see the hand, still covered in bugs, turn over and start crawling its way through the grass. It's an impressive animatronic for the time, but the skin still looks pretty rubbery. Jonathan starts talking to his agent about how long his recovery might be, and he tries to ignore it when, from his perspective, the legs of the big lobster on her plate start clenching up like a closing hand. Yeah, that was pretty freaky. It was very Beetlejuicy. Yeah. It seems to be a hallucination, but Jonathan knows it, so he doesn't say anything out loud. He's not like, are you him? (laughs) are you he Karen tells him that he's only dragging his feet about returning to work because he knows that when he's making money again his wife will leave him and take some of it harsh truths coming from the agent he's upset that she's criticizing Anne again I'm sorry I just don't like what she's doing okay that's fine Karen that is fine thank you after dinner Jonathan drops by the origin institute to check on his wife A yoga instructor moves through the class, and he's very handsy with the more attractive women, including Anne. Weirdly, none of these people seem to be doing the same pose, even though he's speaking to all of them with very clear instructions. (laughs) I had the same issue with it. I'm like, how are you 
leading a class who's all doing different things. It's just, it's very free form. It's creative living. <laughs> I can't tell you how to yoga. You teach me how to yoga. I literally don't know. Anne is very clearly pleased to have his hands on her body correcting her form and doesn't notice Jonathan watching from a balcony over the ballroom. <laughs> Which is weird that the yoga studio has a balcony. Yeah, just for lollygagging. We cut back outside to the hand crawling through dirt carrying a beetle. It's like riding on the hand. <laughs> Onward, steed. <laughs> At the apartment that night, Anne complains that Jonathan was too rude to Bill Richmond, her yoga teacher, but we don't even see a scene where he's rude to him. We just skip that moment. I wonder if they shot something and then cut it or what. I could assume... I can. I could already imagine him being rude though yeah jonathan is digging through his end table when he notices that his signet ring is missing from the box he starts testing karen's theory that Anne is after his money by mentioning that they're considering replacing him on the strip he asks her if she's seen the signet ring and she denies having moved it she brings up an analyst that was recommended by his doctor and he refuses to see one and spend money to tell a stranger what's on his mind so i assume at this point we're supposed to think that the hand has come and taken the ring. Yes. Right. Removed the ring. Yeah. So the hand has walked all the way from Vermont to New York City. Mm-hmm. It's been months, we said. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Did the beetle go the whole I want, way with uh, him? That's what I want to know. <laughs> that's my question. Did the beetle make the whole ride? Well, and and the Adam Family movie shows us that uh, the hand can just leap up and grab the back bumper of a car. Oh, that's oh, true. A little okay. Marty McFly action. They're in bed together when the color slowly fades out of the shot and we crossfade to what I assume is Jonathan's dream. We see the hand continuing to crawl around on the floor and then into the nightstand to steal the signet ring back. Do you guys recall the last time that we had a severed hand in a drawer of a nightstand? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, going eight. Yeah, That's right. Jonathan dreams a bit about his terrible left-handed drawing and the cat landing on his desk and jumping through the window again. Only this time, when he turns to see the log fall down, he notices the severed hand crawling across the floor and out of the gazebo. We're back in color as Jonathan sits up in bed with a sheen of sweat. The next day, at the hospital, Jonathan is being asked to put a sock over his stump to try on his new prosthetic hand. We hear the doctor's voice before we see his face, and I 100% recognized it already. He was actually the best part of Scared to Death earlier this year, and I was happy to see him get another acting job. The doctor instructs Jonathan how to use the prosthetic hand to squeeze his fingers or to make a fist. Who is it? It's the main character from Scared to Death. The the guy who's like, oh yeah, would look better without all the dents. But That guy's the doctor that's telling him how to use his hand. It turns out the prosthetic hand is strong enough to hurt his own hand when he grips it. He tells Jonathan that once he gets good with it, he can use the hand to pick up surprisingly small objects or to button a shirt and do simple tasks. Jonathan asks repeatedly if he might be able to draw again, but the doctor refuses to answer yes or no. They put a glove over the prosthetic, and he instructs Jonathan to make a fist, which he does, and it's clearly just a hand in the glove now, but they added a mechanical finger-gripping sound. (laughs) But the effect totally works. Well, but I'm grateful at this point, because between the accident and now, we've just had Michael Caine with an extremely long forearm. Yeah. Yeah. And a big lump at the end of his sleeve. And there were so many ways, like, when when we're looking at him, I'm thinking to myself what I would have done to try to make it not seem so obvious that he has an extra long arm. Yeah. Like, when he's wearing his robe, I was like, I would have tailored that robe so that one sleeve was longer 
So, it, like, when he's walking, it wouldn't seem like, you well, know. And I think Another way to do it is to just hide the arm and put a put a prosthetic well, That's yeah. what I was going to say. We already did this in Cutter's way, right. and that's we did it pretty did it. successfully, mm. you know. I, I, I think it was weird that they showed all these shots of the stump and this just really long arm. Yeah. Uh, but he also does carry, once he has the glove on, he does carry his arm in a good way. Like, it still feels like, it's not obviously not his whole arm. But it's like he's numb. Yeah, but, but but it's like he's like being more cautious of it because he's got the harness right on. So he he his arm is always in kind of like a up position. Yeah, he's like Bob Dole in it. Yeah, Bob Dole, pure beam of energy. That's <laughs> sort of a weird SNL sketch. Man, Norm Macdonald was so funny as Bob Dole. Why couldn't he have won? Just so Norm Macdonald could have stayed on SNL longer <laughs> and had another freak out. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, we're panning across a new issue of Mandro, and there's a lot of thought bubbles dictating the character's thoughts. Anne asks what he thinks of the new artist's work, and Jonathan hates it. Of course he hates it. Against his instructions, Mr. Maddow has decided to introduce reincarnation to the plot, and Anne's defense is to say that scientists believe reincarnation is possible. (laughs) Really, Anne? Scientists? (laughs) Got any sources, Anne? Well, I like all the kind of like new age stuff that she's getting from Bill. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately that Lizzie will get from Bill. Right. Uh, I think that it only adds to Michael Caine's frustration yeah. with this situation. You really think Mandro believes in crap like that? Well, there's a lot of scientific research being done on the possibility that... He's even changed my outline. Look, it's hallucinations. Well, maybe he felt that it needed changing. That's not what he was hired for. Eventually she asks Jonathan to stop yelling at her, and he says he's not yelling at her. He's yelling at the new artist. Anne doesn't understand why Jonathan won't just hand over his life's work to a stranger so that she can afford a nice apartment and infinite yoga classes. She's very transparently selfish in every scene, but would gladly take a check up front rather than survive off of the rights to Mandro for the rest of Jonathan's life. Cut to Jonathan taking a steamy shower, but when he reaches to adjust the shower knob, it's a silver hand sticking out of the wall. That's great. This reminded me of like the helping hands from Labyrinth. I was thinking that, yeah. Yeah. It squeezes into a fist, and then with a second glance, it is a shower knob again. But even the knobs have, like, three Lines. notches down the middle yeah. that yeah. make it look like fingers separated, yeah. which I is probably what a- tricked his mind at first. Yeah, I thought that was actually a really nice touch to the design. We see Jonathan walking through the city the next day, and there's a giant billboard for Budweiser with the Clydesdales marching around. Do you guys remember the last time we saw the Clydesdales delivering Budweiser? Ugh. Was it that terrible Jerry Hardly Lewis movie? working. Hardly working, that's right. There's a lot of Budweiser in this movie. I'm assuming they paid for some of it. Jonathan goes to meet the new artist and his agent, and he voices his concerns about the changes to his work. He tells the new artist that the story he gave them was simple, and his changes weakened the character by stretching the believability with reincarnation and relying on internal monologues about existential quandaries. Mr. Maddow claims that the changes he made were inspired by what Walt Kelly did with Pogo, which, I don't know well, but is an actual comic strip that ran from 1948 to 1975, and it had a feature film in 1980, but at the last second the theatrical release was scrapped, and it went straight to home video. I found it on YouTube, but I haven't watched it yet. I'm sure it'll get a mini-sode eventually. Yet. Ugh, stop adding to your schedule. Jonathan tries to explain that Mandro is nothing like Pogo, and the artist thinks that he can change that like it's a good thing. Maddow thinks that Mandro could be on par with other popular supernatural works, like Watson's Supernature, which is apparently also real. Lyle Watson was a scientist and novelist who tried to explain supernatural phenomena in his book. 
But as we've already seen, Jonathan doesn't go in for all that stuff. Karen moves to open the portfolio of boards that Maddow illustrated so that Jonathan can point out his problems. But when she finds the art inside, it's all been scribbled out, and she asks Jonathan to explain himself, but we cut away before he says a word. Now, there's also a, a little, like, sketch. With, On the like, side of the like portfolio, Like a caricature, yeah. I think, of her, and there's a little speech bubble or something. Yeah, I couldn't read it. I couldn't it. read it. I was wondering if you could make it out. But... I couldn't, but there is a Blu-ray coming, so maybe maybe we'll update later. I'm assuming it says something nasty about her. Yeah, probably. On his way out of the building, he crashes headfirst into a homeless man around the corner, played by director Oliver Stone. The homeless guy notices that Jonathan is missing his right hand, just like he is. They're missing the same hand. But Jonathan doesn't want to share a second of his time with this similarly handed man. The color drains from the shot again, and we see the homeless man take a seat alone in an alley, when suddenly... A ground-level POV is creeping up on him. We see the homeless man being choked by the severed hand wrapped around his throat, and we cut back to Jonathan arriving home at the apartment in the rain. It doesn't look like a super nice neighborhood. I'm guessing that's why this apartment was so cheap. In the apartment, he finds Anne sitting on the floor of her room, embracing Bill Richmond and crying. They also have an anti-aircraft gun in their living room. Right. It's, like you do. It's, it's a massive telescope. Like way, way too big that to to face out a window in in an apartment that's probably only looking at another building. Yeah. Um, and not mobile. Like you can't move this telescope. Somewhere. It might might have came with the place. So huge. Jonathan is disturbed by what he sees, and he walks away to find Lizzie drawing in another room. He asks if she saw Maddow's drawings, and she says that she did, and she didn't like them. He asks if she doesn't like them because she overheard him criticizing them, and she admits, yes, I, I did overhear you say that. He asks if she touched the art at all, and she says she didn't. Anne enters the room, and Jonathan pulls her aside to ask why she was crying. I can't tell you. You see, you're not supposed to talk about it afterward. She asks him what happened with his meeting, and he says that they've decided to cancel the Mandro strip because he hates the new artist so much. He also divulges that Karen is unlikely to ever hire him again for anything. Why not? We're not supposed to talk about it afterwards. She asks where they'll get money from, and he says he was offered a job in California. At the end of the scene, we get a quick insert of the severed hand backing under some furniture to hide in the apartment as Lizzie walks past it. We crossfade to the California Redwoods area in Northern California, and Jonathan is getting a ride from Brian Ferguson, as played by Bruce McGill another professor at the same college where Jonathan will be starting. Brian says that his classes change every year based on whatever he can get 15 people to sign up for because the school has very free form program. Yeah. It's all elective. Brian assures him he'll have no trouble keeping students because they're fans of his comic strip. Jonathan pulls up the local paper and the headline reads, Creator of Mandro to teach at Saraville. Jonathan Lansdale overcomes handicap, arrives for fall term. President Hammond delighted. We cut to Jonathan addressing his class, and he goes around collecting their names and favorite comics, since this is a comic writing or illustrating class, I assume. The first kid, Billy Jenkins, has no such favorites. He asks another female student, and she also has no favorite comic strip. This is going great. Wonderful. We cut to Jonathan arriving at his cabin with a bag full of groceries, and he notices a snake corpse mangled in the front yard of the cabin. Moving through the cabin alone, Jonathan sees flashes of Anne crying with her yoga instructor, and he moves to prepare himself a meal. 
He tries to use his prosthetic hand to move a hamburger patty to the pan, but he squeezes it too hard and the meat drips between his metallic fingers. Use Uh, your other hand for this. Yeah, I was so freaking mad at this scene. First of all, why would you want to contaminate this metal metal gear with meat yeah. or anything uncooked meat yeah or at least put put a glove on or something a mitt um it was and then when he squeezes it too tight it's like yeah what you think was gonna happen why don't you go pet some rabbits lenny and yeah. see what <laughs> happens <laughs> it looks like a, yeah when he doesn't have the glove on it looks like the terminator's hand yeah, yeah. so it's like really narrow metallic bones he could easily be gripping a spatula with right there's no reason he <laughs> can't be using switching utensil. the hands yeah <laughs> we cut to the tail end of a telephone conversation with lizzie and ann says she'd like to talk to daddy jonathan tells ann that he thinks lizzie's really gonna like it out here and ann tells him it would be silly to move across the country because lizzie likes her school and her friends she suggests instead that he continue paying for two places to live on opposite sides of the country so they never have to see each other well in her partially in her defense this place is, is paid for Right, but he's a teacher. Why is 100% of his money going to New York to pay for a second house? She might have a job. She doesn't. She gets offered one later, but right now she doesn't. Jonathan is tired of arguing with her and has visions of her being strangled to death while she talks to him. He agrees with her plan, and that's the end of the conversation. That night, it rains hard on his cabin. Jonathan hears it dripping inside. In his bathroom, it sounds like the shower is on, but it turns out the faucet just needed tightening. When he reaches for it, the windows to the bathroom suddenly burst inward and a bunch of branches lean into the room, scaring the hell out of him. Weirdly, though, he doesn't turn off the water or push (laughs) the branches back out of the window. He just walks back to his bed where he finds the signet ring waiting on his pillow for him. Yeah, this also made me mad. I was like, you're not even going to do anything? Yeah. Like, Turn off the water at least. Yeah, exactly. But close those windows. That's I just dumb. I don't know. Dumb. You go to a window that's left open and somebody might stab you with some scissors. I thought oh, that wait, when- Oh, wait, no. It was crushing the child. That oh, my it. God. That's oh, right. Oh, God. Yeah. Boogeyman. <laughs> oh, that scene. <laughs> it still gives me chills. But I thought when God opens a window, he closes a door. <laughs> but the door didn't close. I don't know death is but a door time but a window i'll be back what is that from and why am i reading it in jeff goldblum's voice uh it's supposed to be dan Aykroyd's voice Oh, okay it's about vigo oh okay in his classroom jonathan teaches his students rudimentary displays of emotion on a comic character's face anger can be depicted with bared teeth or tilted eyebrows class is dismissed and he advises them to collect new sketchbooks on the way out One of his female students gives him a look on her way out of the room, and we cut right to him grading papers and a knock at the door of his cabin. She hands him a used-up sketchbook, and he offers her a drink. He suggests coffee, but she requests beer. She asks if he thinks that she'll make a good cartoonist, and judging from these drawings, I can safely say she will not. Um, Just for the record, these were graded sketchbooks. They aren't new sketchbooks. Oh, I thought he was giving them... He was returning their graded sketchbooks. Yeah. Oh, okay. And that's what she brought here. Yeah. Do you guys remember the last time a young girl knocked on the door to her instructor's cabin to ask for an alcoholic beverage and later sex? <laughs> uh, little darlings. That's right. <laughs> Sorry, Richard. I should give you a chance. That's okay. <laughs> I guess I say, Amanda Sante. She tells him that the only classes she's ever excelled in were bookkeeping, but nobody wants to be a bookkeeper. He asks her what she wants to do, and she says that the great thing about college is that she can just keep taking classes and never have to pick a career. 
I don't want to do anything the rest of my life. She starts to tell Jonathan about a fellow student who's constantly hitting on her. No, I don't think it's the teacher, isn't it? Oh, is it another teacher? Isn't it? Isn't it Brian? It's probably is it Bruce McGill. Oh, it yeah, is Brian. we find out later. For some reason, I was thinking she was talking about the fat kid that didn't have a favorite comic. But you're probably right. She says that she wouldn't go for him because he doesn't look at her the way Jonathan does. With you, it's different. I like the way you look at me. I feel like it's me you're looking at. She takes off her top and then asks if they can please have sex in bed because she's old-fashioned. We cut to them having sex and she grips his gloved prosthetic hand tightly and repeatedly tells him to do it. Come on. Do it. Just don't hold off. Afterwards, he offers her a ride back to town, and she refuses because she doesn't want to get caught. She asks him if he'd like her to come back, and he invites her back the next day. And of course, in my mind, I thought she was trying to remove the prosthetic so that because she had some sort of like stump kink. Well, I think it might have to do with what he finds after she leaves. Yeah, but that's what I was thinking was the stump kink. We hear her start a motorcycle outside to leave, and he flips through her drawings, and they're all completely awful until one that's fully illustrated and colored in of a woman straddling an enormous hand with the middle finger inside her. So I thought she just meant, use this glove on me, use the fingers oh. of the glove on me. Yeah. So yeah when she's saying, do it. I don't but you're saying, know. I was, she said, I was take the hand I was thinking she was off. into the stump. Maybe. We cut to the local bar where Jonathan mentions that he's been having blackouts to his friend Brian Ferguson. Brian suggests that they could be the result of trauma. He tells Brian that he found a drawing that he never remembered doing. So apparently the reason that his student Stella brought the sketchbook to the cabin in the first place is because she thought that he drew that as an invitation for her. Yeah. yeah, like when he was grading her sketchbook. Right. He's like, going to send a little note back yeah. to you. He's like, See I, me I after actually, class. <laughs> I actually did that in everybody's sketchbook. Sorry. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I apologize for giving you the wrong idea. You just see what I put in Billy's sketchbook. <laughs> oh my God. Somehow Brian is able to guess that the drawing was obscene and Jonathan insists that it's impossible he drew the sketch with his left hand because he was never that good with his left. I'd be scared shitless if I were you. Why? Blackouts are nothing to fool with. No. All I did was a drawing. <laughs> How do you know that's all you did? You ever been drunk? Yeah. Really drunk. I mean, you don't yeah. really remember what you did if you shouted some obscenity in the street or picked a fight with some innocent guy because he had a way with the women. Or... So you're saying that I could black out and rape someone? You think rape's bad, man? You could kill somebody. That night, as Jonathan is walking home, the color drains from the scene again. Passing a storefront, Jonathan notices a small rag crawling across the floor. He moves up to the window to watch it closely when suddenly a full dismembered arm comes blasting through the window at him, shattering the window. Yeah, it's like super long and gangly. Yeah. It, it really freaked me out. Yeah. We but, hard cut. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, because then it's a hard cut. Yeah. I was like, oh, we're not going to address this? <laughs> nope, that's it. We hard cut back to color as Jonathan stomps through a grocery store looking for Stella working at the register. He invites her to his cabin tonight. Stella is the student, by the way, if I didn't say her name before. Uh, He invites her to his cabin tonight. But she seems really pissed off that that he's there. I don't know because he's bothering her at work. I think that's a big part of it, yeah. Okay. 
They have sex again, and we cut to Stella decorating Jonathan's Christmas tree. She asks when his family is coming to visit, and he says they'll be here tomorrow. He asks her Christmas plans. Fuck Christmas. She wants to take a trip to L.A. You have friends there? Yeah, I have friends. She tells him she has to get back to work again, even though I thought she already worked a shift today. Yeah, I was super confused. I I also thought she was working at night. I don't know if, if it was just his daydream that confused I guess me but he yeah he met her at work said come to my place tonight and then she was there and she said she had to go back to work right so the only there's there's two possible options here one is that she came on a lunch break and they had sex and then she said i have to go back to work or that She's between lying. them having sex and her decorating the christmas tree weeks went by or months oh but they don't specify they don't show time passing enough you can't just add a Christmas t- tree to a room yeah. and expect me to know that that means it's months later because it could have been Christmas already. Yeah. Before she leaves, he makes her open a present. She's almost in tears before she opens it, but when she does, she finds lingerie and begins crying. He tries kissing her to fix it, and she offers to come back when her shift is over, promising to wear the gift then. We cut back to the local honky-tonk, the Last Chance Saloon, and Jonathan finds Brian again. He wishes him a happy Christmas, and Brian has some familiar dialogue. I'm celebrating. Me too. Happy Christmas. Fuck Christmas. I'm getting out of these bits for two weeks. Great. Where are you going? L.A. What would be, partner? It's cut ropes. You got friends there? Sure. Friends. Hotel manager. Two weeks shacked up at the beach with 115 pounds of pussy. It turns out he found a young girl to go on a trip with him and spend two weeks on a California beach. He asks if the girl is anyone in town. Hell, you know her. The stuck-up bitch who works at the supermarket? Stella Roach? Taking her. They crossfade from Jonathan's furious face to Stella pulling up outside the cabin on her motorcycle in the pouring rain. When she steps inside, she can't find Jonathan and takes a seat on the couch. She notices her gift again under the tree and starts to unwrap it when suddenly a hand grabs her from under the tree. It's squeezing her wrist harder and harder as she screams. In close-up inserts, we see that it's the rubbery animatronic hand, and suddenly it grabs her entire face, yanking her out of frame. This could have just been a hand here. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about leverage for a second? Yeah. (laughs) And how well you can tug someone with the weight of one hand? Yeah, because, like, this really, really, really bothers me. And I'm like, I'm... You you had my suspension of disbelief at disembodied hand doing things i will give you that hand might be really strong strong enough to break bones in another hand Mm. strong enough to crush a windpipe but how on earth is it dragging anyone anywhere counterpoint you're leaning under a christmas tree to unwrap a present and a spider crawls out and then jumps on your face what do you do you're gonna lurch backward uncontrollably right all right We'll get to other scenes where leverage is a problem. Okay. Well, well. I'm just trying to explain the scene we're in so far is that I would do all sorts of I would non-Newtonian motions if if a human hand leapt from like, under a tree not, at my you're face. You're not Richard. It, your reaction to spiders are not going to be that bad. Well, no. I'm talking about hands. Oh, okay. If it was a hand, my fear is hand. Oh, God. I... If either of you didn't have the reaction of a spider on your face... In total panic and flipping out, then you guys are not human. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that ev- all of her motions are her own motions that she's that she's making herself in a desperate move to get away from a severed hand in the living room. Okay. I'll give you that for maybe this one. Okay. Uh, also, I'll take it. Uh, again, 
all my stuff has to do with spoilers because because I understand this scene completely. Um, yeah. Like knowing what happens later. Right. Yeah. I mean, we I, all do. But yeah, she's just talking about the reality of the scene that we're expected okay. to believe right now. All right. But 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 even at this point, I was already thinking that I don't know if either of you were. Well, you see that it's a severed hand in this scene. Right. But I was already thinking that this wasn't what we're seeing. But that doesn't matter, Richard. You do this all the time and you get so confused over the rules of a movie. (laughs) But you have to accept what's happening in the shot until it's proven otherwise. And then you find out because you don't you didn't know for a fact until the end of the movie what was going on here. Correct. You had a suspicion. I had a suspicion. Right. But there's this scene happens twice and it happens two different ways. So we're talking about the first way it happened. All right. We cut to Jonathan out driving for a while, and then he's arriving at a motel somewhere where he drinks alone in his room. In the morning, he returns to the cabin with his family. He stops them at the door, insisting there's a surprise inside and that he has to fix up the place before they can go in. We see a quick clip of Stella's gift under the tree, but when he moves inside, it's not there. He looks around for a moment, but then he lets his family in. He directs his wife to the bedroom upstairs where she finds Stella's gift on the bed. She lifts the lingerie out of the box and asks if it's for her, and he lies that that's exactly what it is. It's very pretty, but... What made you think of this, of all things? The camera pushes over her shoulder, and we see a box lid with a card still tucked under the ribbon, but now it says, To Anne, with love from John. I'm surprised she didn't ask who wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the guy at the shop or something. Over dinner... Anne asks if Jonathan has had a girl in. Have you been getting a girl in? No. Why? I thought maybe one of your students could help out or something. That's a weird way to ask that question. Yeah. Yeah. He assures her that he is self-sufficient here and tries to pour himself a glass of wine and immediately shatters it. It's like, no, 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 everything's fine. (laughs) Oops. He moves to the bathroom to clean himself up and we hear thunder rumbling. And we get one frame of white, even though he's nowhere near a window the lightning would be flashing through. Jonathan notices that Anne's bags are still packed on the floor of the closet in the upstairs bedroom. She enters the room and he confronts her. Look, John, I came here to tell you something. You never intended staying here, did you? You never even unpacked your other suitcase. And you sent the rest of your stuff to San Francisco and that's where you're going to join him, isn't it? Who? Rickman. Bill Rickman. I wanted to tell you in my own way. Tell me what. She tells him that they're starting a new branch of the Origin Institute and that they've offered her a job there. Jonathan, so, it's not, so it's not the original Origin. Right. This is, yeah, that's true. They can't call it the Origin Institute. Jonathan relays his suspicion that Bill Richmond has been living with her in the loft and she stupidly gives herself away. He's been living in that loft with you, hasn't he? No, not living. What do you mean, not living? Just that. Why don't you answer the question? Not in that tone of voice. The character of the wife here is so perfectly annoying that it's actually well-written but infuriating. (laughs) What does she mean by not living? Like, just... He's been in the house a lot, doing stuff, but he doesn't stay there. It's just, again, weird way to put that, lady. Unnecessary information to give the guy you know it's going to piss off. Did did you murder him? Yeah, Yeah. he's (laughs) dying That's what I thought. It's like, he's not living there. Oh, good. You're murdering people, too. (laughs) We'll get through this. He calls her out for sleeping with him, and eventually she admits it, claiming that it's because Richmond actually loves her, whereas Jonathan never loved her. I I love you. You love me. I don't think so. You loved your work. You loved Mandrill. You loved Lizzie. But I don't think you ever loved me. 
Oh, and, and he does, does he? Bill Richmond does. Yes, Bill Richmond does. While she continues talking about how great Richmond is, we see Jonathan's gloved hand curling up in anger. Throughout the scene, whenever we're looking at Jonathan's face, we get these quick single-frame flashes of white that I was accidentally able to pause on once. <laughs> but it's just, uh, it's just the same shot that we're looking at, but with the brightness turned way up. It's not right. actually a white frame. He asks her if Lizzie knows that Anne is sleeping with Richmond, and Anne answers that it would have been wrong to keep her out. It would have been wrong to keep her out. Why did you tell your child that you're sleeping yeah, with anyone? Again, yeah. this woman is really bad at communicating. That is obviously not what Lizzie understands is happening. Yeah. Lizzie might understand that her friend, who she calls Uncle Bill, is staying over. Right. Like, But it's not like she sits in the corner and watches us fuck because it would be weird to leave her out. Oh, what was the last movie where we had the daughter watch their parents fuck? Boogeyman? <laughs> No, Excalibur. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I think, but I think part of this plays into the the new age stuff that Bill is feeding into Anne. Yeah. Uh, because we had the we had a conversation at the dinner table where, uh, we find out that Lizzie is on a diet. Right. And and doesn't eat red meat because red meat makes you mad, um, and we're not supposed to eat it, and. And then she doesn't drink wine or whatever alcohol. I'm assuming, yeah, uh, because she says it distorts things. And and I was like, first, I, I I'm I'm always troubled when someone says a child is on a diet, yeah, uh, especially when that child is seems to be a perfectly normal weight. Yeah, I, I think she was saying that she has dietary restrictions now, mm. so maybe I, she's I got vegetarian. The other I, oh, I, th- really? I thought he was lit- she was literally saying, "Mommy's not letting me eat certain things because she's trying to change my shape." I, I just sort of understood it to be like, I eat very specific items now because Maybe. my parents are for loops. I got crunchy parents. <laughs> and you know what, John? She didn't think anything of it. Children don't at that age. They don't Stop care. lecturing me, goddamn you! Suddenly, Jonathan has his left hand wrapped tight around her throat. Weirdly, though, she doesn't even react to being choked by her husband. So this must not be the first time this has happened. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly, I'm completely on her side. <laughs> Anne threatens to leave again with Lizzie, and Jonathan tells her instead to leave alone. Yeah, but when you are physically threatened by somebody, you don't wait. You walk out the door with your child immediately. But she doesn't even act like he strangled her. She like when he lets go of her, she's like, "You know what? We're just gonna go." Like, like I'm, I give up. But but then they're opening Christmas presents right, together. Exactly. I was yeah. like, "What happened? What was the plan?" <laughs> So we cut to later Lizzie's unwrapping her gifts and uh, later Anne is taking the car out to the market. She's just going to go do some shopping while they're leave, here. Leave your daughter alone with this man. Yeah. Um, and she asks why the car smells. And John notices over her shoulder that the decomposing right hand is crawling across the back seat. Jonathan and Lizzie play backgammon while they wait for mommy to come home from the grocery store. Jonathan offers her some food and Lizzie says she's on a diet. And Jonathan sees a flash of Anne driving the car in the rain when the hand pops up from behind her. We cut back to the game and then back to his vision where he sees the car tumbling in flames down a hillside like she's driven it off a road. Right. And so my assumption here at this point is when he, when he sees the hand in the car, um, he's just allowing it to do what it's prone to do. Right. He's right. like, I'm going to let it take care of business here and I'm pissed off at her so he it, it can go kill her. Yeah. And and I feel like that is is solidified by him locking the door. Yeah, but but 
it but at this point he's not controlling this hand no but he he's living out a fantasy through it the mm-hmm. same way that when yeah. he was talking to her on the phone earlier he saw the hand choking her to death yeah there's so much of this movie to peel back uh later but uh, it's a good thing she wasn't getting a lot of groceries that required Yeah, that's what I was thinking, space. too. <laughs> yeah, she had enough that she could fit it in the passenger seat, thank God. We hear a car pull up, and Lizzie thinks it's Mommy, but we see the cabin from outside, and two policemen are approaching the front door. Jonathan assures Lizzie that it's not Mommy. Now, are the, but are the policemen in black and white, or no. are they in no, color? They're, they're not. Color. They're in color. Okay, yeah. I, was, I couldn't remember. Um, and he tells her to sit down so he can answer the door. And before he gets to the door, Anne enters with a big bag of groceries. So apparently his vision was mistaken here and for some reason in color. Yeah, I didn't understand the purpose of that at all uh, unless it was from some other blackout. Or maybe the house next door has the exact same floor plan for their mm. cabin and the police were showing up there. We were just seeing that for like Silence of the Lambs reasons. style. <laughs> they should have had the, I mean, they should have had the police bring her home. Because the car broke down. Or yeah, yeah, like like then then that scene could play out. Yeah, just fine. Back at the bar, Jonathan steps in the door and notices a disembodied hand pointing him across the room. Yeah. It's just another bar patron pointing for some reason, but it looks like a mythical hand giving Jonathan yeah. advice. But also, what what happened that he just went to the bar? Like they were just they were just like coming home with groceries, and then yeah. he, what he goes, "All right, see ya." Well, they already opened the presents. They don't like each other. What else are you going to do on Christmas? But she still doesn't leave. Yeah. He follows the hand's instructions, and we stay in his POV as he walks up to Brian Ferguson on the dance floor, who looks fairly intoxicated. He tells Jonathan that his date for California changed her mind because she's not responding to him anymore, and her landlady said her bike is gone. Brian is sure that if he found her that night, he could have talked her into the L.A. trip. As they speak, the lights are dimming and brightening, as though Jonathan is about to have another blackout, and we cut to him driving back to the cabin in the rain. Suddenly, another car behind him is laying on its horn and pulls him over. It's Brian, and he walks up to Jonathan's driver's side window to ask if he slept with Stella and if he's the reason why she canceled the California trip. Jonathan accurately replies that he had no idea that Brian and Stella were going together until he told him that night, and that he drove straight to Reno, checked himself into a hotel under his own name, without her. Brian asks why Reno, and for some reason Jonathan admits here that he did have a date with Stella earlier that day, but when he heard they were going to L.A. together, he couldn't go back to his cabin. Because, yeah, well, she was she was at my place that afternoon, uh-huh. and we had a date for that evening. And then I saw you in the last chance, and you told me you were going to take Stella to L.A., I, I, I just thought I, I, I just didn't want to see it. So I got in my car and I drove straight to Reno alone. Well, how the fuck do I know what you did? You said you were having blackouts. You, you told me so yourself. Brian says that he's going to call the cops because he's decided something here doesn't add up. Brian can't get his Jeep to start for a moment, but when he does, a hand wraps around his throat from the back seat, and we see the stump as it chokes him to death in the car. It chokes him so hard that he's spitting blood all over the windshield and honking his horn uncontrollably. Yeah, so this, again, is where I have leverage issues, because he's, like, holding still while he's being choked. Like, he is not 
thrashing back and forth or right. you know flailing or anything like that as if this hand has leverage to hold him where he is uh, okay yeah and it's kind of like when that bird flew through the window in the visitor and richard got so mad it's like cover your face grab this thing that's really light and throw it yeah. out of the car my bigger problem and stop here, the car yeah well <laughs> the, the other big problem here though is that in the other reality of the story Jonathan is parked behind him and then Brian is choked to death in his car in front of him. So Jonathan might have even seen what happened, but wouldn't he think it was weird when Brian just never started his car and left? Wouldn't he pull up and say, hey, are you okay? I don't think he gives a shit about it. I guess not. So maybe the implication is that he would have just driven around him and assumed that he was taking his time getting started again. Jonathan returns to the cabin and asks when she's leaving. Anne says that she's leaving in the morning and that she's taking Lizzie. No, you're not. I don't think you have any choice. Lizzie wants to come with me. Ask her. You're not taking her away from me. We see the shadow of a severed hand crawling across the room. Jonathan goes to sleep in a bed in a spare room, and we see the severed hand climbing under the sheets toward Anne. Jonathan seems to be shouting at someone in his sleep, his lips are moving like he's saying something very angrily, but there's no sound coming out. And then in Anne's room, a rotting hand rises from the blankets and strangles her to the bed. Anne screams, and Jonathan wakes up in the spare room and rushes in. But when he gets there, she's unconscious, and he turns around just in time to see the severed hand jump out the window. Suddenly, Lizzie is standing in the doorway and thinks Daddy is hurting Mommy. Stop it, you're hurting Mommy! Oh, no, no. No, I, I'm not hurting her. I'm helping her. I heard a scream. I came into the room. He was in here. He, he came in through the window. He tells Lizzie to call the police while he grabs a knife from the kitchen and moves outside to kill the severed hand. <laughs> this is all his plan. He's decided what she's talking about is crazy. The severed hand thing is real. I'm going to go kill that. Well, she, he did see it like scurry out the window. Right. But I wouldn't grab a knife and be like, I'm going to go get it right now. I'd be like, that's literally an alien. There's an alien creature that's mimicking human DNA. I'm going to call the FBI. Or, or at least try to catch it. And I, How would you even know that the knife's going to kill it? It shouldn't even be alive. Right. So how stabbing it going to help? But somehow he finds a trail of blood in the yard and he like follows it. a lot of blood. Yeah, like more blood than you would even fit in the volume of this hand. Yeah, and this thing couldn't possibly still be bleeding. Well, uh, there's another possible explanation for that too. Yeah. He follows the blood into the garage, and we see the hand's POV from above him as it crawls along the rafters, and then jumps down to grab him by the back of the neck. When it's got a hold of him, we see the wrist wrenching itself back and forth, probably remotely controlled, but it's a cool effect yeah, it's like to make flopping. it seem alive. He manages to shake it off once, but it grabs him again by the left hand. The fingers of the hands intertwine so strongly that we hear bones cracking inside, and Jonathan pulls the severed hand toward his face so he can bite it. So I really, I really wanted to be have this be part of the reveal, yeah. And that he just Michael Caine just spits out a bunch of teeth. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> He's biting the mechanical hand. Yeah. Jonathan drags himself across the garage toward the knife he dropped from the kitchen, and then he stabs the hand to the floor. The fingers twitch and curl maniacally until the hand starts skittering off across the room again with the knife sticking out of it. The hand uses the knife that stabbed through it to pop the tire of the car in the garage and then when jonathan pulls the knife out of it the hand climbs up his pant leg it climbs all the way up to his crotch and grabs him by the balls and then it rips open his shirt 
to jump up and grab Jonathan by the neck again, and this time it chokes him unconscious and we fade to black. Jonathan is awoken later by someone shining a flashlight in his face, and it turns out there are multiple policemen here in the garage. His own left hand is still tightly gripping around his neck, and his entire face is almost purple from having choked himself out. The police verify that he's okay, and then inform him that his wife will also recover. She's being taken to the hospital now. The police try to get to the bottom of what happened here, and Jonathan will only go so far as to admit that there was a prowler on site targeting the family. He obviously doesn't want to explain that the prowler was a severed hand, or specifically his own severed hand, because that would be crazy. A couple more cops enter the room and they're disturbed by the smell. They ask Jonathan to open the trunk of the car, and he agrees, but wants to know what they're looking for. The police tell him they found a car belonging to Brian Ferguson. You think I've done something wrong, don't you? Mm-hmm. You think there's something in there, don't you? Mm-hmm. Eh? You're damn straight, I do. Well, you're full of shit! There's nothing in there! You wanna see? Eh? Take a look! He opens the trunk, and of course, inside are the bodies of Stella Roach and Brian Ferguson. This and is an impossibly huge trunk. Yeah, it's yeah. great. I was like, oh my god, this this car <laughs> so, has so much trunk space. So roomy. Yeah. Like, I would probably kill people too if I had that trunk. There were two people in there, and then an excess of space around them. Yeah. This yeah. couldn't have been a real trunk. And Bruce McGill's not a little guy. <laughs> no, but I love the face that Anne McEnroe's doing. Yeah. Her like, eyes are crossed, <laughs> and she just looks like a cartoon dead person. I, I'm, I'm wondering uh, that it had to be part of her audition. I can yeah. cross my eyes. Perfect. <laughs> oh, I, also, I meant to bring it up earlier. When when he's giving her the present, and she goes, a present? Because she, she has like a, a very unique way of speaking. Yeah. And the way she said present, it was like, oh, you're so cute. (laughs) Lizzie catches an eyeful of the corpses in the trunk and is shocked, as are the police officers, who didn't expect to find such blatant evidence. I think they expected, like, a weapon or maybe, like, bloody rags, but there's two whole corpses in here. Not just one, but two bodies. In in the (laughs) trunk that he willingly opened for them. Yeah. So... The hand dragged both bodies to the trunk, in theory. Yes. With leverage, people. I don't know how the hand could possibly drag these bodies and put them in a trunk. Using leverage. You answered it yourself. Did you work on the show? <laughs> Have you ever <laughs> heard you of- work on that show? You should know how it works. <laughs> Haven't you heard of the pyramids? <laughs> no human could put rocks up like that. With leverage, though, they can't. Leverage is the problem and the answer. The deputy recognizes Stella from the grocery store, and suddenly Jonathan launches into a series of Sixth Sense-style flashbacks wherein everything we saw the hand do earlier, we're now seeing him do. As he stares into the trunk, he shakes uncontrollably and then screams in agony with the realization. All right. Now we got got some ground to cover here. Okay. So I think my opinion of the blood trail was the blood is only there because it's raining and it was probably left from when he dragged Stella's body into the garage yeah. to put in the trunk. And it was, you know, her blood was there on the dirt but got just saturated in the dirt. But now that it's raining, all that dirt is is mm. loose and the blood's coming back up. That's Why is she opinion. bleeding so much? Yeah, I don't She's, think He's like strangling her, everybody. I don't think her or the professor guy were... Well, he killed. definitely was bleeding, but yeah. was he? I guess well, he was, was coughing up blood all over yeah. the place. Yeah. yeah, but I just don't think that there was a lot of blood coming out of either of them that would have left that trail. But maybe it doesn't really matter. I think they needed to add a lot of blood because it would have been hard to see if there wasn't a lot. Of and blood. also, he definitely put 
Bruce McGill in the trunk out on the road. That's in the rain. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that wouldn't have happened out here. Uh, as for the cat, I think he punched the cat with his stump. And that's why it went flying out the <laughs> that's window? That's why it went flying out the window. Yeah, maybe. Slightly more sense. I, I think that, that in his blackout, the cat came down and he just full on just boop. I would have appreciated that in the flashback if that's what <laughs> yeah, happened. Because otherwise, it, like, it's like, wh- what happened here? Yeah. It's the only explanation that I can think of <laughs> is that he just full on punched this cat. Okay, so here's where I want to go next. I think it's interesting that both of you are taking it for granted that this is what happened that that you that don't it's not th- the hand that you don't think that that it is the hand in any of these scenes well when we get these flashback montages usually that's a reveal or a turn like this is what really happened no but i feel like i guess we'll get to, to how they're wrapping up the movie but like i feel like we leave it ambiguous because they want to act like he's crazy right and having these blackout moments and doing these things and then thinking that the hand did it as as a way to like justify it in his brain but what if it is the other way around and the hand really is doing all this stuff and everybody else is trying to say like no 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 it's you you're crazy for thinking it's the hand but he's the only one that that sees it happening so he's the only one that knows the truth the the michigan j frog effect yeah Yeah. well yeah michigan j fist (laughs) Uh, it's basically, we'd have to wait for a sequel to find out if it's really a hand then in that case. This was part of my closing arguments was like, I was going to ask you to, so is hand real or not real? Which, which, where do you fall on that fence? My interpretation of the film is that the hand is not real. It's, it's a tool of his fantasy and the way that he externalizes what he, the ways he wants to change his life. But it was disappointing to find out that the hand like i would rather have been he was the red herring the whole time and it turns out that the hand is real i'm on the other side of that then because i want to say that of course everybody thinks that it's him and these are delusions but i think there really is a hand because of the way we end the movie i think that i would be more on that side if for each of the flashbacks the cop had been narrating what he did mm. like clearly what happened is and then tells him all the things and we see the scenes unroll in his right because then pushing, it would be like they're putting that on him. yeah i get that but okay. the fact that he's coming up with these images on his own of him doing the things makes me think that he did the thing yeah but i feel like the fact that he has these moments where he flashes to things that didn't actually happen well he's flashing to this thing that didn't actually happen right. it was the hand and he's just questioning himself in these moments yeah we cut to months later, and Jonathan is in the hospital with electrodes all over his head. Well, hold on. <laughs> I, 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 oh, sorry. I, is there more? No, 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 no. I, I think it's unfair to say that this is a hospital. Well, okay, mental hospital. No, it, this is like a storeroom. There's like bottles of water like stacked up in a corner. And he's, old in, he's in a pharmacy somewhere. <laughs> no. I think the implication is that he's at a mental hospital. Or, I, I, I agree that's the implication, but I don't understand what's supposed to be going on with this room. The decor is a little odd. Is it? I didn't even notice that it was odd. I, I, I thought know. it There's felt... There's also like machines that make it look like a laboratory, though. Yeah. But it also feels very like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Like Totally. They're they're shooting at these weird angles, and we have a checkerboard floor to accentuate mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Um, But it, it looks very bizarre. And I thought she was goading him on like... Like that that there this is some kind of plan to to make him more crazy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was this like, is like the facility from Split. 
Yeah, no, totally. That's that's or, or exactly glass. where my mind was going. <laughs> um, but he has electrodes all over his head being fed into a machine while a psychiatrist speaks with him. She no, talks sorry. him. Not a psychiatrist. What is she? A doctress. Oh, right. Is that how she's credited? She's she's credited credited. as doctress, which I think is a profession that I made up (laughs) in our review of what Najinsky, and you guys laughed at it because obviously no one's ever been called a doctress, (laughs) which is still, I guess, better than the person female doctor or the person in uh, what was it uh, nine to five where someone was credited as janitress. I think (laughs) yes, the person who found the dead body in the bathroom. Um, but the, the doctress talks him through the events of the film and her voice is echoing as she speaks. He relives the events in his head and we're hearing the beeping of the machines go faster and faster. The doctress credits Lizzie with saving her mother's life because she has a supernatural power over him. The doctress unstraps Jonathan's hands because she says that she can handle his rage. He reaches up to shake her hand and he grabs it tight enough to hurt her but manages to release it with a big smile, even as tears stream down his face. She sits down across from him, but Jonathan is distracted by a ventilation shaft over her head. His heartbeat steadily increases, and she asks why. Yeah, I want to know. What are you feeling? Tell me what you're feeling. What is your image? Trying to tell me something? You want to tell me something, John? Where's the hand now? Near your neck. What does the hand want? It wants to kill you. (laughs) Why? Why does the hand want to kill me? Suddenly, Jonathan's ratings are off the charts. Because he hates you. The doctors won't let him dissociate from the hand anymore and insists that it's Jonathan who hates her and that it's his will that controls the hand. She wants to help him take responsibility for what he's done, but just as she's lecturing him that there is no hand, the severed hand crawls around her neck and grabs her by the throat. From our perspective, Jonathan never rises from his chair, but we see the hand strangle the doctress to the floor where her head gushes blood all over the checkerboard tile of the room. Jonathan laughs hysterically in his chair because, again, no one will believe his version of the events. But while he laughs here, we get a second Michael Caine voice laughing along with him. Jonathan unstraps his other hand with the free one and stands to approach the fallen doctress when we freeze frame and the color fades out of the shot. Seems like an obvious setup for a sequel here. Yeah, because the hand is real. What do you call the sequel? Uh, The foot? (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh he loses it in another accident and it starts murdering people that's great god that'd what be, if he just lost worse. it to diabetes <laughs> just, just, like just feet smashing in their yeah. face now you have a real problem with leverage where like <laughs> heads are getting like pounded into dirt by a, a severed foot they can't possibly weigh enough to do that or call it on the other hand oh i like that i like that one hand clapping no second hand Second hand. Oh boy, these are great times. <laughs> Second hand is great because what happens is someone finds the first hand at like a Salvation Army 
<laughs> it's like monkey paw. Why and the they fuck get did they put this what? on the shelf? <laughs> is this a Halloween decoration? It's just bones. I got this hand second hand. <laughs> I really like this movie. I think that Oliver Stone should have directed more horror movies. This is his last horror movie. Yeah. And I I thought especially the scene where he's fighting with a disembodied hand in the garage, which apparently took three days to shoot, looked incredible. Like the camera work was good. And I thought the pacing of the fight was really great. Yeah. I think I really like this movie too. And I, I mean, I think I liked it more because I thought it was more ambiguous than you guys did. <laughs> I, I would have, it would have been higher on my list for sure. If we had confirmed at the end of the film that like if Lizzie saw the hand and was like, daddy, what was that? That just jumped out the window. Or something like that. Just one little confirmation at the tail end of the film to imply, nope, this everything that happened was was real. And I mean, we tricked you before when we blamed it on him. I mean, I guess there's nobody else in the room, so it isn't a confirmation. But the fact that we end with the hand and he's not doing it. But he's not tied down anymore. But yeah, He was with the one hand. But 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 like all other times he's he's he has killed, he's always been separated from the people he's killed yeah when like brian ferguson was killed in his car he was still in his car you can see him in the car when he's being strangled but i guess that you know yeah but we see him tied to a chair while this woman's right. being strangled it, it's it's just as removed as and or not removed as any other kill in this film yeah that's the problem is that yeah if we're implying that all the other ones were fake then this one was also fake but you're saying the other ones weren't fake it's all i'm real. saying they're all the hand mm. and that it's only other people putting on this reality be like that's not a thing you're crazy it was you the whole time it is amusing to me that the only person here who has a problem with the leverage situation that a hand could not possibly do all these things <laughs> is the one who's saying a hand definitely did all these things. That's why I have the problem, though, okay. because I think the hand is real. You guys don't have a problem with it because you don't think the hand did it. I never thought. Here's that here's another it. problem. Yeah, you thought it was him. The you know whole what time. comes before leverage? If you want to talk physics issues, how about a dead hand? killing people i know that's what that's what that's what i'm saying is my suspension of disbelief was th- that was it the goes one as thing far as leverage that was the one thing you you have a hand that is back to life it doesn't have any other special powers okay it has to walk the whole way from vermont it has to drag all these bodies and it has to kill them on its own like with just brute strength yeah well it's an animator's hand so it's probably pretty strong well uh to to uh, play devil's advocate for Jesse to put some things into her camp, it could be that in his blackouts he was hiding the bodies for the hand. Okay, like I like the, that. The hand, the that hand he's that, supporting the hand. Yeah, and and yeah. he doesn't remember because he's blacking he's out. He's giving it but, a hand. <laughs> but I I do think uh, as as far as the camp of hand is not real, they establish really early on and several times to remind you that. His robot hand or his his prosthetic hand is super deadly, very strong and can crush anything. Yeah. This film only has 20 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. What is wrong with people? And this is another one of it's it's classified as a paycheck film. And that's ridiculous to me. I wish Michael Caine was richer. Apparently, he made this movie because he needed to pay for a garage on his property. That's I, what he said. I wish Michael Caine did more paycheck movies. I wish Michael Caine had great. 10 garages. Yeah, this is great. Also, he's We're just have to like... burn down his garage so he makes another <laughs> one. 
Make another hand. I love when he gets to just be a total psycho. Yeah. Like, he's so great at it. Some of these faces that he makes are just like, that is terrifying. Well, it's funny, too, because Oliver Stone said that he, they would go to get pickups or, or uh, these tight shots of his face, and he'd make a face, and then Oliver Stone would be like, uh, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. And Michael Caine's like, yes, it is. Watch the dailies, and you'll see that's exactly the face you needed. And he said he would get into the editing bay and watch it and put it together, and he's like, he was right. He was right every time. <laughs> he's got such control of his yeah. face. That's amazing. I mean, like, he just makes these looks that I'm like, he is insane, and I love it. I, if all of his movies were paycheck movies, he'd be my favorite actor. Yeah. Because I just love this stuff. This and The Island were phenomenal so far. Yeah. I was trying to think, like, like all, so, many, so many of his paycheck movies, because there's also Jaws 4. Jaws 4 and Poseidon Adventure, the return of the Poseidon Adventure yeah. or whatever, beyond the Poseidon Adventure. And they all have small children. That's true. That's the that's the key. That's the trick. Um, it's definitely a thumbs up for me. Yeah, of course it's a thumbs it, it, up. severed thumbs up. <laughs> severed, <laughs> severed hand, two severed hands up. Uh, it's a it's an up for me too. Um, I I I was really involved in this <laughs> watching this movie and trying to figure out, like uh, again in my <laughs> mind I knew what the reveal was. But they they play with time and location so much, um, and I guess to the film's advantage, where you don't you just don't know when things are occurring, right? Because yeah. every scene so far has cut to a non sequitur of a scene. Like, not, there's no flow to any of the scenes. It's just now he's here, now he's there. Uh, so I think that, that helps with the concept of. Uh, you just don't know what to think. And- well, and it's his psychotic break where it's just like he's not really in a fluid timeline either. Like he's not tracking what's going on mm-hmm. just like we aren't. But I also still believe like every character, including the Jonathan character, is completely believable the whole way through. Yeah. Um, And even though they like clearly this wife was was written to be frustrating and annoying to the point that you almost are okay with her being killed at the end of the movie. But it didn't seem like a fake person. Like, it wasn't, like, cheap, badly written thing. It's like, no, these, this feels like... Oh, no, she like, totally um, joined an MLM right now. Right. She reminds me of um, <laughs> Kramer from Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> Not Kramer, but Kramer. Kramer. Um, yeah. Where she's just kind of flighty and nonsense. She doesn't think about the consequences of her actions and just wants to randomly pursue things in in weird directions um but every character here felt like a real person and i i don't think anybody else could have pulled off jonathan lansdale yeah yeah i still think that it's crazy that michael Caine has gotten away with having the fucking weirdest hair yep in I hated cinematic hair history in this whole movie. like in everything though his hair is so weird all the yeah. time it's it was. I felt like it was especially rough in this one because Maybe. it felt like it's like froed out all the time. Um, mm-hmm. it felt like, you know, when you like shear a sheep and it comes <laughs> off in like a sheet. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like that was laid on his head. <laughs> but yeah, um, what are we thinking? Letterboxed. Ah, this is a tough one. I'm gonna put it at number eleven out of forty-seven. It is below Amy and above American Pop. Okay. Uh, I'm putting it in 16th place, which is weird because this is the last one. Yeah. I actually just bumped it down. Uh, so this is now below Caveman, but now above Catalani. And again, that's out of 47 now? Yeah. Um, I actually have it in 6th place 
out of 47. Okay. Um, for me, that's just under My Bloody Valentine and just above Excalibur. Our writer-director here was Oliver Stone. This is the second film directed by the celebrated writer-director, but his first with a major studio after Seizure in 1974. This was also Stone's second and last horror film. So his first film was horror, second film was horror, and then he just did like historical drama type stuff. He wrote and directed Salvador, Platoon, Wall Street, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, JFK, Natural Born Killers from a story by Tarantino, Nixon, Any Given Sunday, Alexander, Wall Street 2, and Savages, which he co-wrote with a Twitter friend of ours, and I hope listener, Don Winslow, from whose novel the film was adapted. Stone wrote, but did not direct, Midnight Express, Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, and Evita, and he also plays the bum in the film. Uh, I also like a appearance as himself in the movie Dave. Uh, okay. Where he's trying to convince Larry King that the president has been replaced by a double. And Larry <laughs> King's just going, Oliver, you're saying that this is some other kind of conspiracy? <laughs> and he, Larry King is just talking him down, going, yeah. Oliver, listen, Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> uh, gotta love Larry King cameos. Novelist Mark Brandel has hundreds of TV writing credits. This is his only feature film credit and his last writing credit overall. The music here was from James Horner. We've heard his work so far in Humanoids from the Deep, Battle Beyond the Stars, and the Breaker Morant trailer, which bizarrely repurposed the Battle Beyond the Stars music. He's back later this year scoring Wolfen, Deadly Blessing, and The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, and later Wrath of Khan, 48 Hours, Krull, yeah commando aliens willow land before time field of dreams casper apollo 13 jumanji titanic avatar and then he tragically passed away in a plane crash not far from here at the age of 61 cinematographer king baggett this is baggett's second cinematographer credit after cheech and chong's next movie last year that sounds weird but it's called next movie folks uh he later takes uh dp credit on dr detroit last starfighter and oh god you devil editor richard marks previously cut Serpico, Godfather Part Two, The Last Tycoon, and followed this with Terms of Endearment, The Adventures of Buckaroo, Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension, St. Elmo's Fire, Pretty in Pink, Broadcast News, Say Anything, Dick Tracy, Father of the Bride, and You've Got Mail, among I others. I love his song, Right Here Waiting. I don't think that's Richard Marks. It is Richard Marks, but he spells it differently. Oh, I just kind of want to say Richard yeah. Max. Richard Mack. Max. <laughs> Richard Widmack. <laughs> Carlo Rambaldi did special effects. He has lots of credits before this, but most notably in Barbarella, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Possession, in which he created the creature. Oh, God, that thing is amazing. Never Ending Story and Dune, but he's likely best known for his Oscar-winning visual effects, for designing and building King Kong for King Kong 76, creating the alien head for Ridley Scott's Alien, and designing and creating E.T. for Steven Spielberg. Wow. He got an Oscar for that. Michael Caine played Jonathan Lansdale. He was born Maurice Micklewhite. This podcast has caught Micklewhite in the paycheck movie phase of his career, and I am loving it. Last year we had him in The Island and Dressed to Kill, and he's back later this year for Victory. And next season he has Death Trap with Christopher Reeve. Nice. See, I think after watching Dressed to Kill, I was more suspicious of of this movie, and that's why <laughs> I was like, was like hmm, uh, he's already done this trick once. Yeah. Andrea Marcovici played Anne Lansdale. Later in the 80s, she shows up in Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone in 83, and The Stuff 
in 85. I didn't recognize many of her credits, but most recently, she is Tammy in six episodes of Baskets. Annie McEnroe played Stella Roach. We had her last year as the girl on her way to a wedding when she gets sidelined by suspected foreign agents played by Ken Wall and Judge Reinhold in one of many running scareds. But we know her best as Jane Butterfield, the real estate agent in Beetlejuice, who gives us Trish Vandeveer in The Changeling Vibes. We'll see Annie next as Corley Straker in Battle Truck next season, and I'm already excited for it. That sounds great. (laughs) I saw the poster. I was like, Battle Truck, yes. Yeah. She met producer Edward R. Pressman on set, and the two were later married. In 1980, Pressman had produced Heartbeat and later Das Boot, The Conans, Bad Lieutenant, The Crow, Street Fighter, and Judge Dredd, among many others. Bruce McGill played Brian Ferguson. He's D-Day in Animal House. He's Matuzak in Time Cop. But most importantly, he's Jack Dalton from the original MacGyver series. That's right. And then I think he did some guest spots on the reboot as a completely different character. Yeah. Uh, He's also the opening and closing button of uh, Quantum Leap, which I think is interesting. Is he a friend of his or something, or a bartender? Yeah, yeah I mean, I don't want to spoil Quantum Leap, but he, he is an anybody, important... Anybody halfway through that right now? <laughs> are we, we going to do the Quantum Leap podcast? <laughs> Maybe I should save it for the Quantum yeah, Leap podcast. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. We can only do TV shows that Bruce McGill appears on. <laughs> Vivica Linfers played Doctress. She was Nurse X in The Exorcist 3, and Catherine Langford in Stargate. She's Aunt Bedelia in the Father's Day Creepshow segment. Uh, I like uh, I like her. She... she she seems to play a lot of small parts maybe later in her career uh, because like this, this ending of this movie, um, she has a similar, very short role in John Cusack's the sure thing. Oh, okay. Where uh, she plays a, just like a teacher in the class that they're in. Is it the, at the beginning of the film? Correct. And even her part in Stargate is, is only uh, in that beginning bit. Oh, okay. But she has a quality about her that I really like. Yeah. I don't know if I picked up on enough of her character from, from this it's just such a short moment right that's why i felt like she was trying to like control him to like i was like is she gonna like weaponize this guy yeah what 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 is it that is her goal here because this this room that she's in just seems so bizarre according to imdb trivia she was a child minder of chevy chase which i'm gonna assume means babysitter okay (laughs) (laughs) not that she implanted the mind of a child in chevy chase Oh my god, that is the greatest title for a film though, right? Childminder. Childminder. Child yeah. Because I was thinking like like The Visitor would be like an accurate Childminder. That would be a great sure. title for The Visitor. Because mm. he's collecting yeah. children. No, I like that one. Actually, that works. That works for me. Also, Steven Sperling pointed out on the Discord that she's played leading lady to James Cagney, Errol Flynn, Ronald Reagan, Glenn Ford, and Sterling Hayden. So, a lot of uh, old school classic yeah, yeah. Hollywood people. Rosemary Murphy played Karen Wagner. She was Maud Atkinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. Mara Hobel played Lizzie Lansdale. She's Christina Crawford in Mommy Dearest later this year. So she's the kid who gets yelled at for wire hangers. Wire hangers. Pat Corley was the sheriff. He's Phil in 182 episodes of Murphy Brown. And he also played Earl Duke on miniseries Fresno with Charles Grodin, who we just lost. Nicholas Horman played Bill Richman. Real creative, Bill Richman. He's an interviewer in Kramer vs. Kramer, and he played Logan Carver in The Incredible Shrinking Woman earlier this year. Is his name Bill Richman? Yeah. 
because but he calls him Rickman. he calls him Rickman, and she actually corrects him after that moment yeah. and says it's Richman. Or, but or, on or IMDb, Richman. it says Richamn. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was. That's, like, a, that's a typo for I, sure. I, I yeah. was looking at my notes because uh, I, I make a copy of the IMDb page. Yeah, and I was like, that's not what I have here. <laughs> that's okay. It'll be fixed by the time this uh, hits its uh, yes air date. <laughs> Edward Marshall plays Doctor. He was Bob Enright in 9 to 5 last year, and this season he'll be Freddy in Carbon Copy. Charles Fleischer played David Maddow. He was Terry in Back to the Future 2, Dr. King in Nightmare on Elm Street, Calvary on Welcome Back, Cotter, and we saw him last year in Die Laughing as one of Robbie Benson's bandmates, but he's likely best known as the voice of Roger Rabbit in Who yeah. Framed Roger Rabbit. Like I, I, uh, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I always like him when I yeah. see him. John Stinson played a therapist. We just had him as Ted Lonergan in Scared to Death earlier this season, the guy from director William Malone's improv class, who showed up at the last second to replace Rick Springfield. He's also apparently in Foolin' Around, but no role is listed, so presumably it's from one of the many deleted scenes of that film. Richard Altman played Hammond. He was Mandel in Roller Coaster and a teacher in Corvette Summer. Sparky Watt played the sergeant. He's Dan Franklin in Cloud Dancer, which we covered in a minisode earlier this year. And Tracy Walter played the other cop. He's Bob the Goon from Batman 89, and we've reviewed his work so far in The Hunter and The Octagon last year, and Getting Wasted in a belated minisode this year. We'll see him next in Raggedy Man later this season. I think that's everything for The Hand. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Miss 45, which IMDb describes like so. A timid and mute seamstress goes insane after being attacked and raped twice in one day, in which she takes to the streets of New York City after dark and randomly shoots men with a 45 caliber pistol. We leave you now with a trailer for Miss 45. Every day on every street, in every city, women are insulted, abused. What is she hiding? Where is she going?